0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, one of the themes of this year, I think, has been the rise of the SPAC. And that is a thing that, like, I, I have to tell you, like, maybe they existed before this year, but it just became this, it, this thing that I see in headlines constantly now. SPAC, SPAC, SPAC. Where did it come from? What, what's wh- why? Why now? What's this all about?
2: Uh, well, that's definitely why we have uh, the two guests we have on. I, I would, I would say I'm uh, very mild in my SPAC knowledge. I, the phrase I keep hear, thinking in my head is SPAC attack. I feel like I'm being attacked by SPACs and SPAC news. Um, our associate Morgan Barna did did a little research into the underlying market. It looks like there's over a hundred of them, a double from last year, and the market cap or the value is also double. So it's almost like they were in existence before, but they've really blown up this year. And so if it seems like you're being attacked by SPACs, it's because you are. And uh, of course, if there's a new area, you know, there's going to be an ETF tracking it. So that's also part of the reason we're covering it, because now there's an ETF that tracks SPACs in
1: the U.S. And and SPAC, you know, if you're if you're new to that term, there's a blank check company sort of a thing with that. What, what's that about, Eric? Yeah, so for
2: best of my knowledge, we'll get our guest to see. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's special purpose acquisition company, and to me, it seems like just a another way to bring a company public that could be easier, cheaper than the traditional IPO path. And as somebody who's seen necessity being the mother of invention, I, I this happens a lot. You know, this is just the way capitalism works. So I think SPACs are just a way for for people to bring companies public in a new way. Um, and that's really it. And, and, you know,
1: and that's why our guests are here to help us navigate these waters. Uh, we've got Julian Klamatchko, who's the CEO of Accelerate Financial Technologies, and then Joseph Schuster, who's the founder of IPOX Schuster. Eric, why these two guys? Right. Well, Julian, to me, has been uh, really on the SPAC thing
2: early. I mean, he has an ETF in Canada called the Arbitrage ETF. And he has a ton of SPACs in there, so we wrote a note about two months ago, basically saying that you probably can't do an ETF for SPACs. The closest you can get is Julian's, which includes some SPACs, because these are very small companies. Their market cap is like 250 million to 500 million. There's a couple of big ones, but that's like right on the borderline of micro cap. So, an ETF needs more liquidity. So, I was talking to him when I was doing some research on this, and he's very knowledgeable. He has a SPAC monitor, uh, but Our call for how you couldn't have a SPAC ETF was obviously overwhelmed because like two weeks later, they filed for one. I think, you know, being first to market in ETF world is very important. That issuer defiance, which has the ETF here in the U.S. with the ticker SPAK, is not on today. But we'll, you know, go over the ETF now and then in this. But the uh, big thing to know about that ETF is 20% of the holdings are pre-acquisition SPACs and 80% are SPACs, the companies that SPACs brought public. We'll dive into that a little bit later. Moving to uh, Joseph. Now, when you think of SPACs, you think IPOs. So in our research, we've also covered IPO ETFs. And I'm a big fan of these. Uh, the ETF that his index tracks, or the ETF tracks his index is FPX from First Trust. And it's been around, I don't know, 15 years-ish. And it is blowing away the S&P. Uh, it's almost doubling it because they've, they're have a couple huge winners. And SPAC and IPO ETFs, to me, do serve a purpose potentially, the viewer, the listener can decide, because a lot of the times they track companies that just aren't in the big indexes yet. Big indexes are can be a little uh, uh, conservative and it could take a couple years for one of these companies to get in there. So to me, they're tracking an area that hardly anybody has any exposure to. Um, so we've always thought there was kind of a value add, but there's not a ton of assets in the space yet. This time on Trillions? IPOing too hard can give you a SPAC at that, GAC, 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 GAC. you ought to know
1: by now. Julian, welcome to Trillions.
3: Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Why does the world need SPACs? You know what, Joel? That's an interesting question. And they've really emerged this year as a popular new asset class. And the point of a SPAC, or the reason why it exists, is basically twofold. Uh, Number one, it acts as a structure in order to take a private company public versus say a direct listing or a traditional IPO. Now SPACs are unique in that the type of companies that they're bringing public are different than what would be used for direct listing or traditional IPO, for example, on a direct listing. These are typically very large private companies that don't need to raise capital on their going public transaction. Then traditional IPOs have really become exit opportunities for venture capital and private equity firms where they're looking to offload their stake onto the public markets. We haven't seen the traditional IPO process being used for actually raising growth capital to fund growth businesses. So we've seen the SPAC emerge where you have more earlier stage entities. Many of them are pre-profit or even pre-revenue, where they're actually coming public and raising a significant amount of capital, which includes cash in the blank check company. As you guys indicated, they generally raise between two to $300 million on the SPAC IPO. And then with their business combination, as a SPAC combines with a private company to bring them public, they generally include what's known as a pipe financing, private investment and public equity that can add hundreds of millions of dollars more. So you can have these early stage companies going public at say a billion dollar valuation and raising $500 million in growth capital to invest in growing that business. So you really haven't seen that opportunity for public market investors to get access to those earlier stage growth entities that are perhaps late stage venture capital type uh, financing rounds, say Series D, Series E, which were usually kept to the private markets they are now coming to the public markets through SPACs. Now, on the other side of the coin, One main driver that has led to a massive increase in popularity and number of SPACs, they're now north of an $80 billion asset class, which has more than tripled since April, is the sponsor promote. And by sponsor promote, I'm talking about the equity compensation given to the founder of the SPAC, which is as high as 20% of the SPAC. So say a SPAC goes public raising $200 million in cash uh, to do a deal, the sponsor or founder of that SPAC could be awarded a $40 million stake uh, in the pro forma entity once the business combination closes. So um, let's go through a real life example. And I, I, I
2: the two that I think most people may have heard of if they've been following this at all or Virgin Galactic and DraftKings. Those are actually two of the biggest weightings in the SPAC ETF because again, it holds some of the companies after they've been brought public. Walk us through, you can pick either example, but just walk us through there was a SPAC that existed before they actually announced that. How long did the, and how did they get that company? How do they pick the company? And why does that company go into the SPAC instead of doing a traditional IPO? Maybe I guess You know, walk us through the timeline of of one of those.
3: That's a really good question. And we can start off just by explaining how the special purpose acquisition company structure works. Typically, they go public in an initial public offering at $10 per unit. So SPAC initially consists of units. And after 52 days, they split into common shares plus warrants. So the average unit comes with it could be as low as 0.25 warrants per unit, it could be as high as one warrant per unit. So that represents additional equity upside for people, investors like myself to subscribe to the initial public offering. So once it's public, they generally have 24 months to complete a business combination. And if they don't, then they liquidate and they pay investors back their money plus accrued interest. They're not allowed to spend the money on anything. They keep it in trust and they invest that in short-term treasury bills. And once they go public, then the quest to find an attractive private company begins. So specifically, we can talk about one of those, Virgin Galactic, how that process went And uh, the way that I understand it is Virgin Galactic was pursuing some sort of strategic alternatives process. I'm not sure if they tried to go the traditional IPO route or tried to sell themselves or what, but they're looking to do something. And Virgin Galactic was a very early stage company, revenue is many, many years away. And so they didn't really fit the mold for a traditional initial public offering as we see them these days. Typically, Uh, companies going the traditional route are much, much more mature. If you take Uber, for example, really at the tail end of their growth stage, and so the SPAC in Virgin Galactic's case was Social Capital Hedosophia One. There's now actually six of them, and three of them, three new ones, went public last week, raising a stunning $2.1 billion in capital. But Social Capital Hedosophia is run by a Chamath Palahepatia, which is you know, well known VC out in Silicon Valley. So his first SPAC, uh, Social Capital Hedosophia One, uh, went public in an IPO, raised a, a few hundred million dollars, and went on a quest to do a business combination. And they're actually getting very close to the tail end of their two years in which they would have had to give money back and lose all the money they invested into it. But you know, luckily, this Virgin Galactic deal came along, and that one was really a turning point because prior to that, the SPAC market was small, didn't get a lot of attention, and the deals were kind of ho-hump when Virgin Galactic came out, it was the first one that was this VC type investment opportunity where it was still very early stage. You have revenue way, way out there. And I mean, the business model is, you know, space flight, which is super futuristic, right? So it had this story to it. It was, you know, Virgin Galactic, it is a story stock because you really need to believe that you can't be looking at the financial statements, any sort of fundamentals to be an investor in that story. So when it came out, And the stock just went crazy. I think that was one of the key main drivers in spurring this kind of growth of this new asset class, number one. And then, you know, number two, it just shows if you're successful in one spec, then you just keep uh, bringing these out. And now social capital and Chamath is up to six, raising well above three. $3 $3 billion. So that was certainly uh, a really interesting deal. It's still trading very well, well above the $10 price of its IPO. And that's really how you judge a SPAC success, at least in the short term, is how high above $10 is it trading?
1: So, Julian, what kind of um, exposure have you had to SPACs and how does your ETF
3: come into play there? We approach it on a different investment strategy than others. We look at what we call SPAC arbitrage. So the way that we approach SPACs is invest before they announce a deal. And we're looking to buy at or below their net asset value, meaning the cash that they have uh, in the bank. Because the key aspect to a SPAC arbitrage strategy is you're looking for a guaranteed return. And the way that you get that is that pre-deal SPACs offer a unique exposure for one main reason. And that is they keep cash on hand. So, you know, it's not going anywhere and they can't spend it. So you have this guaranteed return of basically treasury bills because they invested in short-term treasuries, not earning a lot these days, maybe 10, 15 basis points. However, either they don't find a deal and liquidate and you get the yield of T-bills, or they do announce a deal, and there's this one key aspect, which is they allow you to redeem your shares for cash plus accrued interest, getting that T-bill like payoff. So that's sort of the worst case scenario. We're looking to buy a SPAC at or below its net asset value. And here's where um, the upside comes in. We previously discussed the sort of downside scenario where you just earn basically T-bills, and that discount if you buy it at a discount to net asset value. However, in the upside scenario, if they announce a a great deal that the market really likes, say such as a Virgin Galactic, uh, such as a Nikola, Hylion, Lordstown, things of that nature, where the SPAC just kind of surges in price, can go uh, double or triple above the $10 range. That's where an arbitrager really can make uh, significant returns at a very little downside risk. So we're looking to invest in pre-deal SPACs at or below their $10 plus accrued interest net asset value and exit prior to the deal closing. Either we uh, earn a T-bill return and sort of exit either through redemption or liquidation. Uh, But in the upside scenario, what we're really in it for is this surge in the share price and what I termed the SPAC pop, if you look at any of them announcing a deal, especially in these hot spaces such as electric vehicles, uh, biotechnology, things of that nature, if they can do that, then we seek to exit prior to the deal completing and us passing that redemption date. So
1: you're, you've effectively found the rare win-win in finance.
3: Exactly. Yeah, I call it uh, heads we win, tails we win big. <laughs> And,
1: and you've mentioned the pop there. Can you give us a sense of like what you know, what kind of range of a pop uh, are, are you able to, to lock in here? And what
2: percentage of them pop if there's 100 right now? How many will pop?
3: That's a really good question. And that is moving all the time like with all the attention coming to the space. It didn't used to be as attractive as it is right now. So I'm not sure how long this opportunity will last. But if we look at stocks like Nikola, which went north of $50 per share, there's another one called Hylion. That one was incredibly lucrative. So I think the ones where you're getting triple digit returns in a short period of time, i.e. north 100% or above $20 per share, those are say one in 20, one in 30. However, the ones where we see a pop in the 20 to 50% range, those are quite common. Uh, we probably see those at least 50% of the time, at least in the current environment.
0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
2: The way you uh, are talking kind of does remind me of the IPO ETF. So I want to bring Joseph in here. We, When we study the IPO ETF, which the, let me go over the tickers real quick. Julian's ticker is ARBCN. He's up in Canada. The SPAC ETF here in the U.S. is SPAK, which holds 20% of these pre-acquisition SPACs that you hope pop and 80% of companies already in the market, such as DraftKings and when we look at the IPO ETF and we look at these companies that do the traditional route, all you need is like a couple superstars from like to just rocket ship stocks to make up for plenty of dogs. And we found that FPX was really, the performance was powered off of a couple Facebook type companies, but there were a bunch of duds, but you don't, it, it gets all offset. So Joseph, I guess I want to talk about the 80% after they come out, which SPAC owns, and then you own DraftKings. You own ones, I guess, of these. Talk about these companies after they're out and how they work into the traditional IPO index.
4: So um, what we are basically doing, we start um, once the IPO is done, so we don't buy the IPO price and then get the pop because that's really not accessible. So what we do is we start with one large underlying universe, which we call the IPOX US Composite, And in this uh, underlying universe, we buy companies on day six and they exit automatically four years thereafter. 4 years, it's because we believe that's the kind of maximum of the going public effect. And that's when really the risk and the beta uncertainty about that new listing really gets resolved. So we have an underlying universe in the US of 900 plus companies right now reflecting pretty much all the deal flow over the last four years. Uh, from spin spinoffs as well, and then and, and specs as well. And then what we do with the uh, with the FPX uh, the, uh, and the underlying index is the IPOX 100. Is basically on a quarterly basis we take the top 100 names on a market cap weighted basis in this underlying composite index, and that kind of gives us uh, exposure to the momentum IPOs like the Zoom videos. You know, the Facebooks in the past, the Visas, the MasterCards, while through a quarterly rebalancing, we are able to kind of uh, get rid of the losers as well. And we hold them t- typically as an asset for the first uh, four years of trading. Um, really originally, we developed the index really from a performance perspective. We knew there's performance there in the IPO market, but only a certain segment, like let's say 20 or 30%, and many companies will be the Krispy Kreme donuts of the world. And uh, so that's where we start. Like we, we started with, hey, we want to capture the alpha in the IPO market, not really provide access to the whole kind of space as, as, as an equity class. Has um, worked pretty well, uh, 400 bips outperformance annually versus the SP. Obviously, the question is what is uh, the correct benchmark? Um, obviously, how do specs uh, fall in here is if a certain company is large enough, let's say one and a half, two billion, it gets on our radar and the IPOX hundred, uh, then it becomes large enough, and then we basically by default have to buy it, um, because we know uh, the good performance is driven by the larger IPOs, uh, which can get large by default, which are large by default or by momentum like Tesla or so, and uh, and uh, really the underperformance story of the IPO market is driven by small microcap small IPOs at least historically.
2: Yeah, I think the IPO, FPX in particular, and there's another one called IPO. They're both having uh, good years. And FPX, it's really interesting to me that this thing doesn't have, it has a billion, so that's not chump change. But, you know, given the performance and the fact that you have only 4% of the portfolio of FPX is overlap with the S&P 500. So it's very unique exposure. It's almost like you're capturing the toddlers before they get to be teenagers and enter the big benchmarks. Why do you think more people don't... um, Is it the PR? Because when an IPO doesn't go well, it gets really dragged through the press. Do you think the PR is a problem here that people have bad uh, feelings or that, oh, uh, all these Wall Street banks are going to make all this money and and Mm -hmm. screw me over? Yeah. Is that really the, the big challenge here? Because the performance, you'd think there'd be more assets.
4: Yeah, I think obviously assets are now like 1.6 billion and total around more than 2 billion in ipoc CTFs, uh, as well as of last Friday. I think initially it took a long time to get get it off the ground. Um, obviously, I think one drawback is uh, for, for, for us is we start in the aftermarket, right? We don't really care whether we buy Google at the IPO price and flip it. Like at you know 60, flip it at 90. we Care of buying it at 120 and then keep it for a long period of time and sell it maybe at 400 dollars, which initially really took a lot of marketing appeal away, um, kind of from from the concept. Um, the other obviously challenge is, um, you know, what is our benchmark? Where does Morningstar put it? Uh, there's a lot of because obviously we have a rotational. Uh, kind of cycle whereby we don't know how the kind of portfolio looks like in four to five years. So, you know, like I think uh, financial advisor, at least historically, have had a kind of tough time to know where they put it, right? Um, Recently, it really becomes part of kind of event-driven strategies. You know, it has uh, kind of started to replace private equity as well, because we hold some of those names. And then another reason is we are just, you know, a small innovative firm, which you know, tries to, you know, kind of uh, pioneer the concept of you buy IPOs in the aftermarket, you just index them rather than buying it through, you know, dealer connections in in the immediate, you know, before the IPO and then flip it, make quick bucks. And that's another challenge. Um, However, obviously, the returns speak for themselves. And, um, you know, at at 58 basis points, uh, there's been a, you know, a very attractive product for many financial advisors.
1: So, so, Joseph, one of the things that Julian said that really struck me was the way he was describing SPACs is sort of like it allows investors to have access to a type of company and those types of companies to have access to public markets. It, it sort of seems like the original IPO, right, of like being able to fund companies with public public markets. How permanent of a shift do you feel like this could end up being for the marketplace? I think
4: it's going to be here to stay. you see that, I mean, the, the big guys as uh, a big private equity firms are stepping up in that space. Uh, it's probably going to replace private equity uh, to some degrees. Those companies need to go public. I think it's a great development. Uh, it takes away a lot of kind of um, hurdles, which Sarbanes-Oxley started in 2004. I think it's going to open up a lot of trading investment strategies, opportunities in the long short space. Um, I, you know, I, I believe it's here to stay, it's, uh, it's, it's one way this equity capital markets always find a different way uh, to, to make it and kind of a uh, symptom uh, of the free capital markets as well as uh, you know, this American uh, capitalism. So it's an outgrowth of it and obviously um, the question is how many of these companies suspects are going to be winners and how many are going to be losers. The thing is, we really haven't had like a big, big loser in this backspace. You know, Nikola came down and so forth. But we don't have the statistics yet why we say, okay, you know, one out of 20 makes it and the rest will significantly underperform or one out of 30. You know, the more the underperformers are, then it's going to go kind of away automatically because people are going to be cautious about investing in them once the deal consummates.
2: Um, and Julian, I want to bring you back into this. Um, I just talked about how IPOs can, uh, at least the ones that don't work out well, get dragged through the, the mud in the press and that can overhang the whole market a little bit. I've seen some pretty rough tweets about SPACs from some people. I mean, you're on Twitter, you're dealing with that quite a bit. Is there any validity to what they're saying or what, are, what do they not know?
3: Yes, the criticism is well-founded. If you look at the track record historically of post-SPAC equity performance, it has been poor. They have underperformed. And so that's one thing to consider is the data behind it, which is one reason that we don't invest in post-SPAC equities. And I do consider those a different asset class. Let me just
2: interrupt you real quick. Is that because the SPAC, when the deal gets announced, that POP, Is that stealing from the IPO, post-IPO future in a way?
3: That is one of the reasons. There are other reasons and the market has really changed so this isn't guaranteed to go forward in the future. Historically, say pre-2019, the SPAC market was really a space for lesser-known entrepreneurs. You don't have the big-name sponsors that you do have these days. We have Bill Ackman, Apollo, TPG, social capital. We have all these big uh, hedge funds, private equity firms, venture capital firms with pretty exceptional deal flow and high quality deals coming into the space. We never had that before. And so if you go back, say, five years or 10 years, you did have a number of Chinese companies going public through a reverse merger with a SPAC that ended up being fraudulent, unfortunately. So I think what's changed uh, versus the historical poor performance is the market has become significantly higher quality. However, as you indicated, Eric, the way that we generate alpha or performance is capitalizing on that SPAC pop. And so by the time the deal closes, You know, there's a significant amount of performance built in and, you know, perhaps they're going to give that up. The other thing that has changed and one thing that led to poor performance historically is that if you look at the guys who subscribe to these SPAC IPOs, guys like myself, like hedge funds, liquidity providers that are looking to capitalize on those pre-SPAC dynamics, Uh, however... Historically, you didn't get as much as a pop and therefore more and more often they would redeem to get their cash back because the the share price didn't go up. And therefore, when these business combinations completed, lots of the cash would go back to investors and they'd end up highly leveraged. And therefore, the risk of them failing was significantly higher. What's changed these days is they're raising significantly more capital. The traditional SPAC was kind of 50 to hundred million dollars a number of years ago. And now the average is more like three, $350 million. So they're more cash, not just that, but a large amount of business combinations that we're seeing is coming along with these pipe financings uh, in the hundreds of millions of dollars, which mitigate that redemption risk that, Ha- that used to happen with these deals. So, a lot of things are changing. However, it is important to be cognizant of post SPAC equity perform- performance, and historically, they have
0: underperformed. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
2: Um, I want to uh, ask both of you this question, which is, you know, we just went over some of the, the, the background on the industry. These things are now in ETFs, which I would argue probably is the way to play them because you go out and try, unless you are in the market and can pick this stuff and have knowledge of everything going on, an ETF will minimize your risk. That said, would you recommend to like your Uncle Bob or somebody that they buy a either your RBTF, which has these specs in it, or Joseph FPX. Like, is this really something a retail investor should should have? I know you're biased, but give me your your take on what
3: you would say. Sure, Eric, I can take that one. And so, what we're all about is offering alternative ETFs. So, instead of traditional asset classes, sixty forty portfolio, we are leaning more towards what we call, uh, you know, the next 60, 40, which is 50, 30, 20, in which that 20% is a diversified sleeve of alternative asset classes. And with uh, the advent of uh, alternative ETFs, the IPO ETF and things of that nature, investors can finally get access to these institutional caliber alternative strategies. And what we're really looking for in terms of something alternative to your traditional stocks and bonds and something that is uncorrelated or perhaps even negatively correlated, such that in Q1, when your stocks are crashing, you know, luckily bonds kind of bailed people out, but with bonds 10 years at 75 basis points, perhaps it may not be there on the next crash. So it's important to own asset classes within a portfolio that Are uncorrelated and perhaps could zig while your other asset classes zag. So we ran a study, we run a SPAC index looking at daily performance and in the first five months of 2020 where things went absolutely crazy as you know with the coronavirus pandemic, our SPAC index was actually negatively correlated with both equities and bonds. And uh, we all know the great performance of treasuries kind of in the first five months of the year. However, the SPAC index that we run outperformed treasuries on an absolute basis with lower risk and lower volatility. I think they declined maybe 5 6% at their peak to trough decline. Meanwhile, treasuries declined more like 8%.
2: And Joseph, let's, let's turn to you. Say you're, you know, your niece comes to you and uh, she's in her 30s should she buy the IPO ETF? Uh, is that something that should fit into somebody's portfolio?
4: Yeah, I think absolutely. I think it makes sense to invest strategically as an asset allocation plan into these companies, which have a lot of beta uncertainty, new listings, IPOs, spin offs, specs are probably one part of it. Uh, you know, we have outperformed, you know, from FPX's perspective, uh, by almost 400 pips annually over the last 13 years since the fund launched has given you double the performance, almost what the S&P has given you. So it makes, makes sense to invest in that space, but always maybe 10% of your, your money you put into the equity market overall. Um, however, it's, it's obviously important to know, you know how much um, the individual rates are. I don't believe taking more than 10% of, of an individual holding into your portfolio. Um, you should not do that, you should be diversified. And you should have the ability to rebalance the rebalancing probably should be on a quarterly or senior annual basis. So you're able to get rid of uh, uh, losers and uh, and just let the winners uh, run. So absolutely should part of your asset should be part of your asset allocation um, um, in, in, into that space.
1: Yeah. Julian, I forgot to ask you something um, earlier, which is how do you get exposure to this stuff? Do you have to
3: write blank checks to someone? <laughs> in terms of investing in SPACs, well, we do it in a number of ways. We do subscribe to IPOs, which as an ETF, I, I think we're the only one that actually does that. So you need good deal flow and connections at the different uh, investment banks, brokerage firms. So That's one way. We also buy in the secondary market, whether they're the, the units, i.e. the shares and the warrants, or even the shares once they split off from the units. So there's a number of ways um, in order to invest in that. Sometimes we just look at the discount and it's a, just a straight cash arbitrage. Uh, sometimes we're buying these ones uh, at NAV on a unit basis, and we think the sponsor could uh, announce a good deal and, and let's get that pop. So it definitely requires a significant amount of monitoring and trading and uh, additionally deal flow on the IPO side.
1: We mentioned that you are Canadian-listed uh, are there any advantages to being in Canada for this?
3: I think there is. I don't know the US regulatory regime super well, but what's interesting in the Canadian regime, it was actually changed dramatically just last year that allowed us to launch hedge fund strategies within prospectus-issued products such as an ETF. And by hedge fund strategies, I'm talking about leverage, derivatives and short selling. So our accelerated arbitrage fund is actually a leveraged fund and not the traditional, you know, double levered kind of daily rebalance type thing. It's leveraged like a traditional long, short hedge fund where you have your longs and your shorts. So, you know, you do have gross exposure above a hundred percent. So the really interesting structure that we actually invented is, you know, getting into the weeds a bit on the ETF side, but we utilize what's called subcustody. So we utilize a custodian as all ETFs do, but we also have a prime broker, which hedge funds use that allows us to sort of short borrow and leverage the portfolio. So I'm not sure if any US ETFs actually have individual short positions, but our ETF does.
2: And Joseph, um, you know, we've got this, I think there's going to be a SPAC ETF attack. Um, SPAK is taken in flows every day. It's only up to 20 million, but pretty good for uh, a smaller issuer. You guys planning to make a SPAC index? Do you, do you anticipate a market where there could be, you know, three to four SPAC ETFs by the end of the year?
4: Sure, I think obviously demand can be there. We have a SPAC index, the IPOC SPAC. Uh, SPAC is a tick on Bloomberg. It measures the performance of the most liquid uh, SPACs into the consummation of the deal, typically 30 to 40 companies has been up like 10% since we launched it end of July. I think there'll be more coming on the pre-consummation space, but also on the post-consummation space only. Uh, Eventually, I think it really depends on the performance of it, but um, I think it's just uh, um, the first in a a number of of spec ETFs, spec focused ETFs.
1: Okay. Closing question for you both. It's one that we ask everyone. Favorite etf ticker cannot be your own julian i'll start with you
3: well that's a good question my favorite etf ticker and cannot be my own well i I hear one that uh i believe one of you two guys talk about Moo for the agriculture etf you know that one that's a that's a classic one joseph over to you i like
4: a-r-k-k both uh the company is, is fantastic, and the fund over there has been fantastic too.
2: We were just talking about that. Yeah, that that's talk about that's the Kathy Woods uh, actively managed fund that's just yeah. so in the zone, like Michael Jordan in the mid nineties, kind of yeah. in the zone right now. Yeah, um, yeah, not not that. That doesn't get mentioned a lot as the favorite ticker, but it gets brought up here and there. Uh, And Moo does get mentioned a lot. I'd say that's probably the most mentioned, right, Joel, maybe? That is a Hall of Fame
1: ticker. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. That's a a Mount Rushmore. (laughs) All right, Julian Joseph, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. Thank you you guys. Have a good one. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find Julian at Julian Climaczko, where he's also known as the Spat King. And you can find Joseph at IPOX888. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast.
0: Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.